being a stand-up involves hanging out with other stand-ups. And so no one can be controlling or demanding of attention in that way amongst that group of people. Like, we can't all be monsters at the same time. We have learned to take turns being monsters. You are listening to Made of Human, also known as the Mopad, a podcast hosted by Sophie Hagen, who is a Danish comedian. Mopad. Trying to find out Mopad. how to do life. Mopad. But it turns out Mopad. nobody knows Mopad. Hello, thank you for listening. It's going to be a bit of a special episode because I'm very, very sick. <laughs> I have a cold. So I'm going to let you listen to the episode like so super quickly, <laughs> so quickly. And um, I'm going to take the names, the Patreon names from another episode and put them into this one <laughs> because my throat hurts and I need to sleep. I am a mess. I'm a mess. I am so, so sorry. Um, quickly, <laughs> just want to say um, uh, thank you so much for having been the most amazing listeners. And thank you for creating uh, a space where I feel comfortable telling you that I'm not going to do the intro. <laughs> because uh, you're not going to be all weird about it. So thank you for that. I'm, I've just announced shows in Denmark. April uh, next year, April 2019, I'm going to be in Copenhagen and Aarhus. There are tickets on my website under Denmark, I think, sophiehagen.com forward slash Denmark 19, I think it is. I'm also going on a UK tour in April, May, June, and a lot of other stuff. I have a new podcast called Secret Divers Occult, but yeah, Google me. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to let you listen to this episode with the incredible... Guy Branham. Uh, I don't mind starting this podcast with you telling me about your thoughts about socialism. <laughs> well, that I was just saying um, that in my little working class farm town, like if you said socialism, it would be on par with like, I mean, worse than the mafia. It would be like um dangerous and scary somebody trying to tell you how to lead your life and these are like working class people who have irregular relationships with healthcare who have no hope of sending their children to college or university in any way like who really just think socialism is scary if a politician in my hometown called someone a socialist everyone would doubt and question that person and be be scared of them it's so that's so clever it's so, such a clever move from their from their side from capitalism yeah just to somehow make the good guys seem like the enemy right it's such a clever move because working class people are the and like the lower classes than that are the people who need socialism but the 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 wonderful thing about america is that there's a sense that if you ever had a sense of class consciousness that wasn't just cultural camaraderie, um, you would be doing yourself a disservice by like by giving up the possibility of your class transformation in some way. Oh. There's like if, if you uh, like because these people who work at Walmart or are like construction workers have it in their head that they're going to do something at some point in time that might allow them to become a millionaire. The American dream. The American dream. And so the, that's actually so the American dream is actually upkeeping people's um, willingness to fight against poverty? Right. Yes. Oh my god. So both of my parents, both of my parents uh, my dad was a construction worker, and my mom um, worked as a cafeteria lady. And so my mom was working a government job, and my dad, for like the second, like the last third of his career, worked exclusively on hospitals and schools, which is government spending. Both of them hated unions; they didn't want to be members of their union, and f like never made the connection that the reason we had very good health care from my mom's job was because of that union. And the union is always just somebody who's going to get in your way and tell you what to do like america is so rooted and you don't get to tell me what to do and there are ways sophie that i really love and respect that you know um and i i do think it is a 
great sensibility in so many ways, but it also is the thing that fundamentally gets in the way of people being able to like deal honestly with their own economic existence. Yeah, because also it's not it's not really it's sort of like someone having kidnapped someone and placing them in their basement going, no, no, but you can decide what you do in this basement right. in which I'm keeping you captive. Yes. And then you're like, yeah, I'm the master of my own prison. Well, you know, you're like, uh, yes. Yeah, but, you know. <laughs> well, and uh, like racism is so important to it as well, though, because central to this idea, any degree of socialism would be stealing from white people to give it to brown people. Like, um, and there's just this cognitive dissonance, like, uh, amongst my own family, these are people who have had so much trouble with addiction and incarceration and like real poverty, and they can't understand the way that social services would benefit them. They are so scared that social services would just be in service of a brown person who talks differently. So, are you like you coming here to the UK? Like, how much do you? Um, did you know about the rest? When did you learn about how the rest of the world was different? When did you learn that America had a fucked up side to it? Okay, so the, from childhood, I had this obsession with like learning about the wider world, which was very much like dissuaded. Like my school and the people around me were always like, "He doesn't need to know this." The extent to which um, a limited view of the world was considered important in our area to keep us within the boundaries of our economic life. You know, l like, no one talked about it, but our shitty schools. Like, ah, it's it's just so American that, like, the, the little farm schools that I went to had little or no support from the federal or state government. They had very little money because it's all based on the taxes around you, not the taxes of the entire place. Uh, and what it creates is a, a school that in my area creates farm workers and construction workers and, you know, down in Los Angeles creates lawyers and entertainers and people who run the world. But it's because we get to run our own game that that is okay. Um, we, my hometown likes it that way because they are able to ignore California laws saying you have to educate about uh, like gay history and they are able to ignore um, like sex education laws and stuff like that by by running their own game. And so I, for a number of reasons, like, but a lot of it was just that my mom was one of the few Jews in our town and my mom was always like, there's a bigger world out there. There's shit going on. You should know about it. And I was like very unhappy there and was constantly trying to learn about like different ways of doing things and was fascinated by it. But coming to Britain for me now is such a weird thing because I realized to some extent it was always an intellectual game to me. And like now I'm having to look at it and be like, all right, like this is going to sound so stupid, but um Reading about Britain's history of colonialism and conquest, I was able to just be like, yeah, that's what they did. But there's something about being here and seeing the vast riches that were brought from elsewhere and put here um, that is unsettling, you know? Mm, yeah. um, and it's, it's wonderful. It's such a beautiful city. Um, but... It's a, like being at the heart of an empire is a little bit weird for an American because God knows we have practiced imperialism, but always uh, through the tools of capitalism, you know, uh, which makes it look a little differently. I feel like it's so strange. Like when you learn things at school, it's always it, it just seems like it can't really be real. Uh -huh. Something about a teacher you're just saying, right, and then this happened in 18 da 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 and then in 1700 and you're learning and you're writing it down and it's, it's not real. Like, you feel like if it was true, the teacher had to like burst into the classroom and be like, oh my God. Yes, yes. Horrible things happen. Right. It's, it's, you're kind of being presented them as, as facts and you're like, oh, okay, I guess that can't be that. This seems a bit... There is something so... There's something so soothing about a fact, though. You know, there's something so, like, depersonalized and decontextualized about a fact that I have all... I deeply love them. Uh, but, like, let's be fair. 
I was taught almost no history in school because I'm from California and California doesn't have history and California doesn't need history. Okay. California is just people who showed up 20 years ago and are working jobs and maybe you'll get a better job or maybe you'll start a business. So disheartening. It it really is. It's, it's very, it, it took me so long to realize that I was from a colony. You know, it took me so long to realize I was from a place that is about extracting natural resources and nothing else. You know, we, and I'm from California and we've got a couple of cities that are about running us and managing us, but those things were distant. And the places that I was from were just about, we need poor, uneducated people to grow things or mine things. It's, it's just very interesting. Um, <laughs> And it's a bit late, but I still want you to introduce yourself. We, just, oh. we were meant to do it in the beginning, but you were so you were just saying all these interesting things, and I want you to keep saying them. It was very fun. My <laughs> name is Guy Branham. I am a comedian from the United States. I live in Los Angeles. Nice. I, I am. Uh, I was the host of Talk Show, the game show on True TV. I wrote a book, My Life as a Goddess, uh, available wherever books are sold, uh, and I have been on TV a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, why are you in the UK, by the way? Oh, no reason. Oh, uh, like holiday? Yes. Oh, wonderful. I, I just had never been. Um, and I do think you Europeans are a bit, like, full of yourselves about complaining about Americans, like, um, not uh, not traveling that much. And I really want to emphasize that, like, we regularly drive distances to get to a football game that would place us in the Netherlands right now, you know? Oh, yeah. like, I, I, lived with a, I lived with a Canadian comedian for a while, and he kept being like, why do you not just go to Spain on a weekend? <laughs> it's right over there. Yes. So um, I, uh, I had never been, and it was a place that occupied such a significant place in my mind for such a long time that I was like, if I'm going to go, I want to go for like a piece of time uh, and really just sort of like get get the feel of it and the only time that you can really leave los angeles for this much time is between thanksgiving and christmas uh when everything shuts down wow i um i've read about half of your book i didn't oh thank I, you so much I, i'm um so i'm writing a book as well and I oh that's very sh- cool shut everything out and i was like oh if i read anything i'm just gonna feel really bad about myself yes and, Oh. I did the exact same thing. I, yeah. It was so funny because immediately after finishing my book, I just started like sucking down like Samantha Irby and like all yeah. of these books. And I was like, God, why didn't you do this when it was like, would have been good research. <laughs> but it is that thing of like, if you do that, you'll just be like, I'll never be her. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I was, and I reached a, the chapter about uh, the representation uh-huh. and I write about that as well. And I was like, Oh, I shouldn't, this is so good. Oh, that's such a better <laughs> analogy than the one I had. And I was like, should I change my, no, don't steal it. Don't steal this analogy. <laughs> well, I mean, I felt the exact same way about Lindy West's book where I was just yeah. like, why am I writing about Ursula from the little mermaid? <laughs> Lindy's already taken care of this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how did you find the process of writing the book? Um, it was really hard because for such a, a long time, I've written stuff because I had to for a job. And the thing is, is when you're doing something for yourself, uh, there's no one there to yell at you. And, uh, you know, all of this economic talk, I was raised to be a responsible employee. You know, I was raised to be, um, to see the person who is like, giving me my paycheck as the person I need to be responsible to. And the notion of being responsible to myself, you know, wasn't so much there. So I spent a lot of time not writing it. um, And then uh, wrote it so much in like a, Oh God, I have to get this done kind of way that it was only after I was done that I started to really like look back at it and be pleased, you know, because I'm very aware of, problems with my book and and all of that stuff but as time goes on I'm like that's the book I should have written you know like and it's not you know it's just that thing of having to confront the specificity of you you know like having to be like uh it's it's not just a bunch of hilarious stories from when I was a child, you know. It's not, it's not what a lot of other people wanted, but like so many of the things I do, writing for TV or doing stand up, are sort of like giving people what they want. And there was something nice about having something that was like 
uh, all right, come to my house. Like, I will be your host, but you'll eat the food that I make and you'll play the games that I want, you know? How does that feel to... Because you're kind of... You're letting go of some control, aren't you? Because you're kind of going, here's my life. Uh -huh. And people can do whatever they want with it. They can yes. misunderstand it or misinterpret it or hate it or... And it's such a vulnerable, you know, it's not a, a job you were ordered to do. Like, this is you. Well, having to respect that is really hard because you want to push back and you want to, you know, when I'll read a, like, Amazon or Goodreads review where somebody's like, I had a problem with this. Like, you you want to push back at it and it's like, part, the book, I, I, I spend so much of it talking about pop culture and and sort of other things that helped me understand myself and, like, me having a strong relationship with these stories is what shaped me. These other people get to have a strong relationship. They get to hate the things that I wrote. That will define them and make their stories more interesting. Like, having that aspect of democracy, I think, is something people are having a really hard time with as we have democratized media. There's something so exciting and terrifying about having democratized media where Everybody gets to have a fucking opinion and they get to put their opinion out there. And there are some like older school comics who are like, what does that have to happen? And I think it's kind of amazing. How do you feel about control in general? Um, I think I like control. I, I think that um, I have this sense that it, I have to manage everything or else it will I'll fly apart or I'll end up, you know, so much of my experience is defined by my economic origins and this sense of like, well, if you don't play your cards right, you're just going to end up working construction like every other dude, you know? And so, so much of my training was that I have to be sort of like hyper controlling everything to try to navigate my way out of that world and being able to just sort of be like, guy, you're fine. Calm down. It'll be all right. Just do your thing. I feel like I'm not good at that, but I'm trying to progress in that direction. I also think uh, as a fat person, I so much feel that I need to be managing people's perceptions of me so that they don't get the chance to just make the decision that they will make with their eyes. And also having to sort of like let go of that and just be like, people get to do what they do. Like, I don't get recognized all the time in the United States, but, like, it happens enough. And there's something uh, just a little bit hard about being here in Britain where I have been on television significantly less and just be like, all right, we, let's see how this goes, you know? So is that is that part of it, do you think, part of your, like, becoming a comedian, is that part of... The control. Like, you're controlling how people see you. You're controlling what they hear from you. Um, but I'm not, obviously projecting, by the way. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But I also think um, stand-up comedy is, is mostly about me controlling the injection of my voice. Me controlling the fact that I do get to be heard from and hyper-managing that. And I think one of the beautiful things about stand-up was that having stand-up in my life meant I was able to relax in all other parts of my life. Because if only for seven minutes on a stage, my perspective was centered. And then I was able to not have to, in every conversation or in every place, be hyper-managing things. Knowing people were allowed to have a bad experience with me and not like me. And that would be fine. Because I would have my time elsewhere and there would be other people who who would like me. Um, I think we pathologize um, entertaining a lot. <laughs> you know, like we, we pathologize the need to have attention. And I, I do think that, you know, as I spend more time with my therapist processing my relationship with my family, uh, I do understand more why I chose a profession where I get to be heard, <laughs> you know? Um, but I, I also think that like, that's fine if you're able to grow up in all of the other ways. You know, like, we've all met stand-ups who can't. And that's one of the other great, one of the other great things about being a stand-up that people don't think about is being a stand-up involves hanging out with other stand-ups. And so no one can be 
controlling or demanding of attention in that way amongst that group of people because it would like we can't all be monsters at the same time we t- we have learned to take turns being monsters <laughs> that was my main reason for doing comedy was just like when i realized that there was a group of people that I could be myself in front of mm-hmm. and they just got it yeah they just understood and like my weird jokes and my weird just personality and my anxieties and there was no no because i don't think well i don't know how if it's the same in america but you know it's there's no pretense because you can't really because you're about to go up on stage and talk about the most vulnerable parts of your personality so what you're going to go backstage and pretend to be cool right right you just didn't start about shitting your pants at a wedding (laughs) yeah i mean leaving behind the safety of normalcy is like so so important and i think one of the real dangers is people getting in la at least people getting famous and then wanting to have like the security of normalcy and i think stand up at its best is saying like like we've all shit ourselves at some point in time and like you know conventional society one of the things we do is not talk about it. And we have chosen to publicly talk about it. And there's something so nice about having that on the table. And there's something so annoying about someone on the internet being, did you hear Sophie Hagen shit herself? What's her problem? It's like, calm down. Yeah, we all shit ourselves. Yes. (laughs) That's so true. It's just so true. I don't don't think that's a... I think that's a reason why... Well, it's not even just that there's a reason why people are on stage, but there's a reason why everyone does whatever they do, you know? Yeah. So it's not just, why are comedians doing this job? That's strange. Well, I think it's other jobs are strange. Yes. Um, but I do like, how, so you said so you in therapy, do you enjoy the process of just someone digging into your past and your psyche to find out why you do the things you do? Um, I think so. Um, like we are also reflective for a profession, you know? And so it is a little bit weird going into therapy and like, just, you end up just, you do most of the work yourself because you're doing that all the time. And it is wonderful to have this other person be like, hey, stop. And I mean, therapy is really having one designated heckler, you know, who is like empowered to, (laughs) to like, uh, to heckle and uh, my dude, there are ways that it, it's he's very he's he's also a gay guy, but he's very different from me in so many ways. And having his perspective, I think, is really valuable to step back and question the the things that I've prioritized. You know, um, are you are are you in therapy? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> I've heard I've heard people say it's not good that talk therapy is useless and cognitive behavioral therapy is the only thing that really works. But like, I like my dude, and I think it's so. I mean that that's a person to person thing, isn't it? Like, because I've that's always helped for me, and I can feel it physically helping. Mm-hmm. Like I can feel the like feeling of relief in my yeah. body when she says something, and I'm like, oh my god, everything makes sense. You know? Yeah, because I've been in therapy since I was. 16 mm-hmm. fucking hell that's over it's almost 15 years uh, <laughs> oh my god this thing should be at some point it should have been done shouldn't I? <laughs> but my um my cousin had this i forget what it's called it's like four letters where so you have to like um look at someone's finger or something and then they'll ask you a question and then you say something and then apparently that's like a way to deal with trauma Oh, do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, and there's there are the flashing light things and yeah, stuff like about, that. Yeah, yeah, something about light. Um, I don't understand how any of that works. No, me neither. But I suddenly heard about it, and I was like, that sounds terrifying. I don't want to do it. <laughs> um, but it's also the thing of like poking at your brain is interesting, and what you find in all of it is always cool. But but the notion of I should have been done at some point in time is just like it's, it's so false, and it's us participating in the external worlds like critical reductive view of what therapy is and it's like sounds just like my therapist right now. i mean like oh should you have brushed your teeth enough that you no longer need to brush your teeth <laughs> but also i keep asking her to fix me and she keeps saying it's, it's not that's the wrong word to use it's not about fixing i was like oh okay well can you tell me what to do she's like that's not what this is you just have to talk about it i was out of therapy for about five years um and 
it was like I moved for jobs and it was hard and all of that. And going back has just been so nice. Just realizing how much it frees me up in the rest of my life to have that processing time is like really good. What made you start in the first place? Um, coming out of the closet, I like, or more, no. So like I went to law school after college because I was trying to like do what my mom wanted me to do with my life. And I moved to Minnesota, which is uh, a sad, terrible place in the United States, um, full of uh, the descendants of your people. Um, It was actually very funny. There was a a girl from Norway who was at law school with me, uh, and she was so disgusted by the children of Minnesota because she was like, they talk like my grandparents because they were always trying to speak Norwegian to her. And she was like, they talk like my grandparents. They eat like it's the 19th century because they were all like, my grandma made this, Uh, you know, sort of like their connection with Scandinavian culture was from the 1870s, you know, but um, it was my first real experience with winter. And I just became a terrible kind of depressed. And then I thought that the answer was to come out of the closets, which was a good thing. Um, But it also just left me, crashing even more and I finally got to a really really bad place and was like well I guess I have to ask for help now and it was like it was a bigger process of learning to ask for help which I mean this is kind of what we were talking about earlier Americans don't think we're allowed to ask for help you know Um, and I think that there are like our pride in believing that we don't need help is really dangerous. And like starting from that place of at school, in mental health, in so many ways, just reaching out to people and saying, I can't do this anymore. You need to help me. And really fearing that people wouldn't be there. And then people showing up in so many ways. Um, And it helped and I got stronger and I learned to be a person and to be a person who was honest and gay and, you know, and, and that was so wonderful. And I, my first therapist, truly terrible, like truly poor, poorly suited to being my therapist, but it was still good. And also, uh, I went on drugs and, you know, it was at a time I'm much older than you, but it was a time when, uh, you know, psychoactive medication was like even more villainized than it is today. And people were like, oh, it's terrible. And I had the best experience with Prozac at a point in time when I couldn't do anything because I felt engulfed in these problems. I, I went on medication that made the problems small enough that I could pick them up and move them, you know? And like that taught me so much. And one of the truly wonderful things is that like, I feel like Prozac taught me how to see things in a way that I am still able to use at points in time when I have not been on medication. Like I've been on it in my life and I have been off of it in my life. And I know that if I get to another point where my depression is unmanageable, I can do that again, you know? Um, But- So what have you learned from the way you said you still use it sometimes when you're not on Prozac. What, what's the what's the lesson learned from Prozac? Uh, is that I control my perception of these problems. That I get to decide how, to some extent, how big they are, and whether it is a thing that is crippling and incapacitating, or whether it is a thing that I can manage and can be part of a well balanced mental health life like just sort of we've all got shit at all times and the thing is is during the worst moments of depression you cannot remember what happiness feels like because you're only aware of these bad things and um i mean the two big things i learned were orienting towards good things the importance of knowing what is making you happy and being able to have access to something that can make you happy and being able to not ignore, but manage and control. I always think of it in this very physical sense of it being like boxes that you just like pick up and move to the side and it's still there and we'll get to it. We'll deal with it eventually, but it's not like 
it's not in your way. It's mm-hmm. not like eclipsing you. It's um, not like on top of you. Just... Yeah, because the, like there were times when I would just start obsessing about these things, and then Prozac made that obsession less pressing. And then in a post-Prozac world, uh, look, also, Wellbutrin did some good work for me. I had a very bad experience with Celexa. Um, but that I now in my life, you know, when there have been times when I, you know, my career or my personal life or whatever felt bad. That it's just like, hey, guy, let's put this to the side. You're going to come back to this, but right now you're going to do this other stuff or learning the lesson of like, um, start doing things that you can finish. Like, start doing some things that you can finish. Because I think for me, de- like, I have been in that debilitating depression where you just like can't get a thing done. Um, and learning, like, uh, this, like, in in preparation for coming here, I'm such a lazy person. But I've taught myself to love a to-do list, the satisfaction of crossing off a to-do list to sort of, like, manage that. (laughs) And, like, it was good. I mean, like, being in your 40s is terrible in its way, but you learn some things along the way. And I'm just here to learn. (laughs) Teach me. Teach me everything. (laughs) No, I fucking love a to-do list. Yes. But sometimes you you can see yourself write down, like... Fix everything, and then that's most stressful. And you're like, well, uh. well, no, I mean, and isn't that, isn't that such a great representation of depression that you think you have one thing there that is fix everything, and the answer, and it feels stupid, but like the answer is like acknowledge, like I wash the sheets and I put the sheets back on, and even though I've already done those, I'm gonna put them on the to do list and then I'm gonna cross them off because I did them, you know, and just sort of reminding yourself this shit can get done. Like you have a life and there are lots of things that make you happy. Don't let the bad stuff win. like overwhelm you. Yeah. And also <laughs> it's the thing of, um, you, you know, Oh, I got out of bed and now I'm, I'm in this uh, supermarket and I'm losing, I'm losing my mind cause I'm just not in a good place. And, Oh, it's, I'm not as good. And you see all these other people who came from work and you're thinking, oh my God, they just have their life under control and they're so happy. And you go, but hold on, for you, getting out of bed, getting sh- like showering and getting dressed and going to the supermarket, that's like, that's really fucking good. Congratulations yes. on being super, super good at life. Also, none of those people are happy. It is the most important thing to remember that everyone is miserable, and people who are presenting their lack of misery are the saddest. <laughs> like, you know, it's uh, it, it makes me so mad. And one of the, the other interesting things is that uh, my depression was in Minnesota, which is a part of America that is very much about presenting normalcy all the time. And that was very hard for me to manage. And, like, one of the things I really had to learn was that um, I'm allowed to look at your life and recognize the things that you're not willing to talk about, you know? Um, And just remembering everyone's unhappy, everyone's self-conscious. Like, L.A. is so hard because the depression of my career isn't good enough in L.A. It's like a disease that infects everyone. And it has definitely ruined some of my life. But just coming to a point of being like, everyone feels that way. Just have a good time. You're at a party that's sponsored by a flavored vodka. Like, you feel like you're not allowed to be here because you're not important enough. But so does everybody else. Go be breezy and have a good time. How do you feel about visibility? Because I feel whilst, yeah, everyone's unhappy, I feel like it's, um, it's easier for, because as fat people, we have this, the, the stereotype of being sad and sad or jolly. It's uh, like a good mix. Well, the, the, the fact I learned that was loveliest is that fat people are half as likely as the rest of the population to commit suicide. And no one ever wants to believe that because they're always like, no, you guys are sad. And it's like, no, we're dealing with our shits. Uh, is that because we can't hide them? Yeah, like, I think it is so much because we can't hide. And other people have this like fear of holding it together and presenting a facade behind which they are crumbling. And it's like, I've always said, the worst thing about me, you can see the minute I'm in front of you. Like, there's nothing nothing else about me 
that our society is going to judge or be more like angry at than just my physical existence. Um, it's like seeing you can see the the you can you can almost guess from looking at you what what the sort of shit you've had to go through. Right, exactly. You can look at you and go, oh, your doctor doesn't take your health seriously, does he? <laughs> yes. Uh, I was just talking to Allison about going through a thing with that. Um, but it, it's like, it's annoying, and there are definitely times when I get caught up in that, and I'm aware of that. Um, and I do think it is nice to remember that I have an advantage in that that is already on the table for me and I'm not spending any of the time that other people are trying to hide or present normalcy, you know? I'm just focusing on not, not using this for my book. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. I really like that idea that that, that might, that, like turning around into a positive. Like my, yeah. my um, version of that has always been I can't, and this is such a probably a bad person trait for me. But when my thin friends get into relationships, I can't. I, I always want to ask them, but do you, would would they still be there if you were fat? Mm-hmm. And I kind of love that I will never ever date someone who wouldn't date a fat person. Right. And that's such a nice way of kind of um, extracting. Uh, you know, like, idiots won't come near me because uh-huh. they're idiots. Well, one of the weird things for me was I, for the first, like, 30 or so years of my life, had to assume that anyone who was interested in me was interested in me for the right reasons. And it was weird when I started being on television for the, like, and when I was on the show Chelsea Lately, it's the only show I've ever really been on that, like, gay guys adored. And so there were all of these gay guys who, like, wanted my attention. And I assumed, like, uh, oh, well, they get me. And, you know, having to sort of, like, realize, like, no, like, you, you, you have to look a little bit harder and be a little bit more discerning because they're not seeing you. You know, um, it was... Uh, it was weird and a journey. So is is it so is it almost like fame or success or whatever you want to call it? Is that al- has that almost become something that hides you in a way? Oh, I think it can definitely be a thing. There is uh, what a wonderful observation, and I think one of the real dangers of the place that I live is people who fall in love with the extent to which fame can hide them. Um, it, because it is a different kind of, it's like hiding behind normalcy, but it's a fancier version of hiding behind normalcy. Uh, and I think so many people, like, once they get a taste of that, really want to embrace that safety. And I think it turns good comedians into terrible comedians very quickly. Um, yeah. Uh, so you must have talked a lot about your book and therefore your life yes. like in the past months since I, the book came out I got very tired of my own perspective <laughs> like I, I was just like I don't want to I don't want to say my opinion about anything <laughs> that, well that's perfect because I have a question that I always ask on this which is um, and it's based on when I was a teenager I got to interview my favorite boy band Westlife oh really do you know Westlife yes oh, you do yes oh that's the best oh thank you <laughs> Very, very few Americans do. Yes. Um, and I asked them this question, which they answered badly. So now I'm asking other people because you can't be as bad as they were. Poor Westlife. Well, like, just, <laughs> they, they still have my heart, but yes. that was a big letdown. Yes. Uh, so the question is, and it's based on the fact, well, for you, it's based on this fact that you've talked about your perspective and your book and your life for so long now. So, And maybe there's been something in your mind the whole time where you were like, can I just... Like, why are you not saying this? So the question is, what question would you most want for me to ask you? That's a wonderful question. It could be anything. That's a wonderful question. Um, today, the question I would most like you to ask me is, Guy, you've decided to not be in America for Thanksgiving. Like, clearly that's some sort of little statement on your part, 
But what are the aspects of Thanksgiving that you will miss? What is the America that um, that does live in your heart that you want to celebrate? That was not like a global question that really like got in at the core of me. The sort of um, like I feel like that, especially as people who talk professionally, we get up and we decide what's on the table, you know. And I feel like we're we're not used to someone coming at us with a question that bores in at something that we haven't decided to talk about, you know. Um, that's, uh, that's a wonderful question. And I managed to dodge it by asking something very specific. No, that's a good question. What, 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 what is the America that lives in your heart? Okay. Here are the things that I am missing, not being in my little hometown in November. Um, my dad, so Thanksgiving is right in the middle of pheasant season and there is a bunch of pheasant hunting where I live. And my dad would always make me go pheasant hunting and, I hated it. I hated it so much. And now that I don't do it and my dad is dead, I miss the smells of it and the experience of it so much. Um, but it is... Here's what I miss. This is so funny. Uh, it's watching my mom put together a large complex meal um, with like a field marshal's acuity, like watching her. I mean, it's just, she would make a to-do list and she would, but like watching her like scratch things off and all of that and have like 50 things going on and us harassing her about uh, why it wasn't done yet. And just her being in charge. I'm sad that I will not get to watch that this year and I won't get to smell dead pheasants. Um, yes. Sophie, what's the question <laughs> that you never get asked that you wish you would get asked? Well, the thing is, so when I was a when I was a teenager child, I would always imagine being on talk shows. I loved talk shows. It's why I'm really bad at panel shows in the UK because that's not talk shows. I didn't grow up with panel shows. Okay. So I loved. I would always. Ima I would sit with like a, a fiction mug in my hand and be like. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now that you ask me, <laughs> but the questions I always imagined uh -huh. them uh, asking me were questions that I like needed to be asked so yes. that I could really find out who I was, like a prop, like a classic teenager with issues. Yeah. Um, so I think now my my therapist does take that role of asking me these questions. I'm like, oh. <laughs> So what's oh, I wonder. Yeah, I wonder what did Mentha, my dad, left. <laughs> so what sort of questions would you ask yourself on your imaginary talk shows? Oh, God. That's the th you not find this now? When you get interviewed, you're like, that, come on. Come yes. on. Yeah. Or like, and sometimes people show up with like good questions. And it's like, what the fuck? What are you doing oh looking God. into my soul? Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think at the moment, I think one of the things I'm trying to figure out at the moment because i have a back issue now because uh -huh. i'm 30 now it's, it's very hard i'm very adult uh, which means that my chiropractor keeps asking me how did that feel how does that feel so what if you do this and how did that and how did you sleep and how did you and i want to say to her like I, i've not been present in my body forever like i don't know how my body feels i don't yeah i'm not used to listening to my body like i've just it's taken me 10 years to deal with how it looks and now i love that but i'm not listening to it yet so now these days i have to constantly think about what i do with my body and how long i've been sitting and how long i've been standing and it's so strange alienating fat people from our bodies is the weirdest game like it's this very present thing i'm changing my answer to your question to a better thing the question i would like to be asked is Guy, what part of your body do you love most? Oh, tell me. And I'm going to say it is my calves. They are. Oh, that's the bottom bit. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like they are beautiful. They are shapely. They are muscular. They do their job. You can't really see them in these jeans. <laughs> um, but uh, that's wonderful. I also really love the idea of you as a 17 year old girl. Like it's it's something very similar to like. What a talk show meant was that somebody was breezy and in her best outfits and like half a drink in. Like there's something so wonderful about 
you imagining from the safety of that place, the honesty Sophie Hagen could spill out and, and like <laughs> that it would be honesty with good punchlines and <laughs> all the textures. Like that's, that's really wonderful because I think I had a very similar sort of like um, romanticization of, of talk shows. When you were watching talk shows in Denmark, were they domestically produced talk shows or were you talking about like The Tonight Show? I'm try- I don't actually remember what because this must have been in 2001 or so. So it, what was it? What was that even? What can I have watched? Letterman. Yeah. I think that must. Be, uh, what's yeah? Jay Letterman. L- Leno. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It must have been that. But do you, do you guys do you ha- did you have during your life some dude or lady who like had a talk show of that sort? in Denmark? No, not that I remember. It was always American. But I grew up with, I grew up, like I grew up watching. I learned English from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, The Nanny, I loved The Nanny, Saved by the Bell. So, so I, everything was American. And I, I don't speak anything capably other than English and the fact that you guys are so capable of engaging on our turf when it comes to that, it makes me feel very terrible, but also so appreciative. No, I think it's it stems from it's not from necessity, you know, because yeah. it's such a tiny country, so no one produces anything. It's cheaper to buy an American show. So it stems from necessity because we wanted to be entertained and that that's what there was. But I think, and I think it's the same kind of, it's the same feeling of if you're not within the norm of society, you learn to adapt and you learn to appreciate, you know, whatever is straight and white and uh-huh. cis and, you know. Because you have to, because there's yeah. nothing for you. There's nothing that is you. So I think it, I don't know why I made that link in my head, but I think I felt, a part of me felt like, well, you must know what it's like. Maybe not with languages and TV shows, right. but you must know what it's like to... Have to speak uh, yeah. like to the hegemonic language. language. Yeah. yeah. Um, can I ask you hmm? w- one more question? Um, so when you are somebody who is being successful as a comedian in a country of six or seven million people, like just that question of, um, do you always have a sense? Well, and also bringing in with it specificity, you're not uh, a six foot one dude who is telling like the thing of, well, am, am, am I for all of Denmark? You know, do you, do you have a sense? Like, do you think in terms of, what spaces you will fill within Danish entertainment? Or are you just like, I'll go to London and then I'll go to Los Angeles and that will be what well, I do. It wasn't, it's, I've not, my place in Denmark is very tricky because Denmark is generally very, very anti-feminist uh-huh. and I'm generally very, very loud feminist. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, like the feminists in Denmark like me that's my audience uh-huh. so I can do shows and I can sell tickets but there's not really any TV that I am invited on and the, what I am invited on is they just want me to talk about a tweet I did yeah. seven months ago because then they get clickbaits and they, they're not so because the media isn't inherently feminist mm-hmm. they will then sh- have me on to do like I did a, my last show was about my grandfather who was a psychopath mm-hmm. so it was about emotional abuse and they said how about we um, we invite your grandfather in I was like what are you doing <laughs> what so I said no to that so it keeps and then they wanted me to talk about some tweet I did about um, Hugh Hefner yeah uh, and I, I was like no can I just please come and talk about my stand up show and they were like oh no we need a hook whereas all the men comics go on and just are funny right like um, the it seems so interesting there not being space for specificity because, like, well, and also what we define as specificity, you know? Like, being yeah. being a straight guy isn't specificity, but, like... But be- also, in Denmark, standing out is not good. Yeah. So we have Jens alone, the law of Jente, which is just this um, consciousness in the country that is... You do not think you're special. You yeah. do not think you're better than anyone else. You do not think that you should be listened to more than anyone else. So it's kind of the opposite of 
America, like we what we learn that the U.S. is. Yeah, we're like everyone's the same. Don't like I was. I wore so I'm wearing my red jacket today. I wore that in Denmark, and I was standing on a station platform, and I looked around me, and I was the only one not wearing black. And we were sixty people on this platform, and I was like, oh shit. And I knew that I was the most unpopular person on that platform because you do not stand out. So me saying loudly, I'm a feminist and I believe that uh, women don't have equality or whatever. That's both me saying that I need something more than other people need uh -huh. and that also I dare to stand out with an opinion that isn't popular. So there's a lot of... So the media and the circuit and people who are meant to... People who are meant to say, oh, well, we don't have any of these. We should back them up we should make sure they get on tv you should make sure to get diversity yeah they're not doing that so you do become a niche if you're not a straight white male cis slightly you know safely saying all the things that you, you're allowed to say you know not making any big statements like we have one christian comedian uh -huh. and that's a bit weird yeah you know, that no one really you know that's his you, uh -huh. you have to constantly remind him but he is Christian. Right. And then we have, uh, well, now there's a few more, but we use that. There was one brown comedian, mm -hmm. and that was con that was how he was introduced onto the stage. Yeah. It was his whole thing. And then you become a feminist comedian, and then you're no longer part of the circuit. Yeah. Well, that's a whole, I know that wasn't what your, what your question was, but uh, so it's a tricky one. So I don't know if I consider myself successful in Denmark. I consider myself a success within the, the niche that a feminist but there are a lot of people who don't like me in Denmark. There are a lot of things to complain about in the United States, but the fact that we have just shit tons of entertainment means that you do like, and it can be annoying that, you know, I, I, I can feel like I'm this weird thing as opposed to friends who aren't that, but it, it's actually been a thing over the course of the past five or six years that that really is shifting a lot of the things that were conceived of as sort of normalcy and perspective. Like a couple of my friends who I started out with who were like nice white guys of the sort who get hosting work and who came to LA and were consistently getting hosting work. One of them created a, a show a couple of years ago and the network was like, yeah, we don't think you should host it. And they ended up getting uh, a comedian of color to do it. And he was really surprised because his like conception of himself is I'm normalcy. Um, and, you know, th that that being questioned was really hard for him. And when I hear some of these guys who I love so much and who are so talented whine about that, I'm a little bit like, uh, you know, I would have more sympathy if you had had any sympathy for me in 2007, you know? Yeah, um, but it's, a, it's a classic thing of I send a, a link to a shirt to my friend who's a size six. Yeah. And she said, oh, they don't have that in my size. Like, That's so unfair. I was like, excuse me. Right. <laughs> unfair. But it, it must feel a little bit weird to feel like you have to go to... Britain or America for there to be space for you. But I didn't, yeah, it is. It is retrospectively, but when it happened, I, uh, it, it, it didn't happen. I didn't know that it wasn't a thing yeah. until I moved here. So I moved here on a whim. I went on a vacation and then ended up just staying. And it wasn't until I, this is where I learned about feminism. I didn't know it was a thing until I moved here. And then I came back and was all like, guys, hey, 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 you, you're all really sexist. And like, this feminism is a thing. It's a really good thing. Did you know that? Like, I just discovered this over in, in, in the UK. And then they were like, oh, no, she started speaking. Uh -oh. That's that's fascinating because as an American, having no notion of Denmark, you just assume they have all the progressivisms. Oh, that's you know? Sweden. <laughs> it, it really is. Sweden is the feminist country. And then we kind of, there's a saying in Denmark is we don't want Swedish conditions. And that basically means let's not get all feminist about this. Seriously? Yeah. It's a thing. Oh, no, Swedish conditions. Um, uh, though I do have to say, I think you guys have the best monarch in Europe. The best uh, what? Monarch. Oh, uh, we do. Oh, my God. Are you yes. joking? Margretha is like... She's the best. Okay. Love the smoking. Yeah. Love the biking. When yeah. I found out that she translated the fucking Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. I was like, who is this bitch? Why mm -hmm. isn't she on television she more? She illustrated the whole fucking thing. Yes. Oh, she illustrated it. Under yeah. a pseudonym. Yes. He didn't uh, even... She, she did it under another name. Like, uh, oh, my God. Why would you not say you are the queen? Also, like, consistently great style. Um, it's... It, the thing is, is, like, my, my knowledge of... Denmark is so limited, and it is like um, it's 
you know, what's her name from Borgen? Something Brigitte. Oh, uh, yeah, Brigitte Sanson, I think. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, I, I never thought about gender there in that way. But it's a strange one. Like, I remember watching a Danish film, and it was a man and a woman uh, who'd been in a relationship, and they were arguing. And they both they were both crying. And it was so real. And it was just this man, like, just crying, and she was crying. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, I guess you don't really see that without that being a joke in other... So there are aspects of Denmark where yeah. I can see that... Like, when I moved to the UK, it was very strange for me that people said love and hun and uh-huh. hold, held the door for me and, you know, m- this whole p- men paying for women's yeah. drinks and stuff. That felt very strange to me. Yes. S- which I think is a nice thing to have in Denmark that there isn't that. Yes. Hello, love. Uh, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> um, I... As a gay man, one of the things that is most strange to me is the expectation in heterosexu- uh, in heterosexuality of men paying for things because it, it is just setting up a power disparity that is strange. Like you should be human beings until you're in a relationship, and then there and can then be- you can pay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's just like. You know, people I think of as being relatively progressive still have clinging to that as that is showing a woman that um, she is valuable. And it's like, it's just a little, it's a little gross. You know, there, like, there are a lot of things that are wrong with gay men, but I think starting out from a place of presuming equality in your your sexual interactions, it's just so nice. It's just... So nice. <laughs> um, well, I, and the more I think about it, I'm like, b- but like so much of what I know about Denmark is filtered through women. I mean, Isaac Dennison is probably the Who? Uh, Isaac Dennison. Um, uh, sh- uh, she was an author. Um, she wrote uh, <laughs> like Out of Africa and um uh, Babette's Feast. Um, Babette's Feast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know that. Yes. Thank God. Yes. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you can't know about someone I don't know about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Babette's Guestable. Yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, it's like most of the things I, I know about Denmark are largely filtered through women's perspectives. Uh, but I don't think I... I also think that you guys, one of the troubles is you guys have had these countries for thousands of years, and there's something nice about having had a country that was invented 250 years ago, because we've had to have so many of our fights just, like, out in the open, you know? Yeah, we're all looking at you. Yes. <laughs> Tell me more about this um, uh, equality in sexual relations thing. That was, that's I, I've never thought of it that way before um but of course that makes sense it's just so nice to understand like when i hear women talk about uh when it comes to consent behaviors that are rooted in sort of like socialization to be compliant or just in an idea of if i say no i don't know what he'll do the thing is about a gay guy is like he knows that he gets to say no you know, it's like when it comes to anonymous hookups, the frequency with which somebody shows up at the door and they're just like, nah, or I'm just like, no. And like everybody walks away and nobody has to feel bad. It's just sort of that or just having a comfort of knowing somebody is going to tell me how they feel about something and not be sort of like under the weight of some weird acculturation um, to like... I think I didn't understand all of the circumstances under which women don't feel empowered to be able to sort of like talk or express themselves. Um, it's interesting. Would it's, you? It's really strange. Like I'm, uh, I'm at the moment. I've always been mostly with men, primarily ninety-nine mm-hmm. percent. But then I'm, I've recently sort of fallen for a woman, and it's such a different mm-hmm. aspect it's like my whole fancying a man fancying a woman two completely different things for me <clears throat> and I've, I'm still not really sure what the difference is but I the word respect is like the most prominent in my brain when I think about it it's this it, it, there's no chase there's no um, emotional labor that I assume I will have to do there's no I think about I think about it way when I think about approaching her or asking her out, 
it's with a whole other expectation. It's with a whole other where we, when it's a, and I think it's like the way it's meant to be. That's my main feeling. Uh -huh. It's like oh, this is how a relationship is meant to be. You see each other as human beings, and you respect each other. Well, I, I mean that aspect of like the fact that we just in our culture have to see a man as a human being, and there's no way like heterosexual men conceive of sexual objectification as being a nullification of a person. And I, we just can't do that in, in among gay men. And it's, it's been interesting talking to my straight friends who like couldn't conceive of like a respectable man, like choosing sexual objectification. And it's like, what the, f what the, what are you doing? What are you saying? And one of the things I think is most funny is that people think of, gay guys as being like more sensitive or whatever. I, I think we are not naturally inclined to it. I think there's just no one to do that labor. You know, it's like, there's not like a part of our world that is just like cordoned off and it's their job to think about other people. So like, we all have to pick up the trash, you know? And like, we're, we're not like, no one's saying we're good at it, but you just kind of have to think about it because somebody's got to. Yeah, it's not, and then, but that, and I think that's, basically what it is is that it's all the assumptions yeah so even if you meet a man and it's you know it, it's and it's good and he is a nice guy and you still have the assumption and it'll still be so ingrained in us the power play and the gender roles and the you know and it will be a thing because society wants me to take out the trash yeah but and we both know that we both have it in our in our socialized bodies so if I don't take out the trash, that's a statement. If he takes out the trash, that's a statement. Yes. It's never just not a thing. And the, the notion of nice guys and what that means and how... Someone who doesn't kill me. That's all I want. <laughs> yes. man. That's all I want. Well, and, and, that's my type. Like, a, a, like, one thing is, like, among gay guys, like, there is a, a lot of power games and stuff like that. And there is, like, the thing is, is there's just something nice about having space for roughness where you know no one can be eclipsed or completely dehumanized in the way that is so easy for women. Also, I want to tell you an illustrative story uh, that has splashy name dropping it. Okay? So, <laughs> I was out for an evening with this boy I had a crush on years and years ago. And we were out at like uh, a super scene LA club. Um, and he got a call that... Uh, um, David Furnish, is that his name? Uh, 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 Elton John's husband was there. And he had this other guy um, who he was maybe going to be hooking up with who was there, who was just like a college student from Canada. Uh, and he was just like, the college student from Canada was just like a earnest, sweet, good-natured boy who did not understand this world of celebrity. So anyway, the point is, is that Elton John's husband came and uh, he like had got suddenly we were whisked off to table service and there was a bottle of champagne and there was vodka and there were all sorts of boys flocking around um, and terribleness was going on. And then the sweet little boy from Canada said, um, what does Elton John's husband do? And I said, well, he's Elton John's husband. <laughs> and he said, yes, but what does he do? And to me, that is just so reflective of the way that we cannot conceive of a man as being an appendage in the way that a woman does. With a man, we're always saying, but what does he do? What's his deal? Um, and I just loved that little boy's resilience um, in his conception of like, but he's a per, like, what's, what's his deal? Um, and I think we're just so used to seeing women as plus ones and appendages and all of that that it's hard to break it out of their minds. And I'm just so relieved and happy to be in a sexual orientation where I don't have to worry about that and think about it. I mean, there are other aspects of feminism and not interrupting ladies and getting myself out of acculturation to being a, you, what it means to be a man that I have to work on. I completely accept that. But like, um, I like that. I always have to look at people I'm dating as human beings is pretty nice. So the um, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. This is super fun. The, the last question um, that I always ask is this. <clears throat> so you're in the delivery room, mm -hmm. and you have also just been born. Okay. So you right now, 
uh, holding yourself as a tiny baby. Okay. A little tiny guy. And he's crying and crying because he just got out of the womb and the woods was warm and safe and now there's lights and sounds everywhere and it's very scary. And he's crying and crying. He's like, is this life? Is this what it's going to be like? This is terrifying. And you know what the next 40 plus years are going to be. Yes. Like, you know exactly what's going to happen. 40 plus is the meanest thing you've ever said to me. I am, I, I am 43. I'm just saying. It's still <laughs> cruel to have it thrown in my face. 40, 56, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know what you, the rest of his life is going to be like. Um, and you can, so you can say something to him. Now, you cannot give yourself advice. It doesn't, he'll forget about it in just a bit. So it does, you can't change anything. Yes. But for this very moment, you get to tell him something about what the rest of his life is going to be like. To yes. maybe make him stop crying if that's what you want. Mm -hmm. What would you say to teeny tiny baby guy? So many of the things you want are going to come true. And so many of the things you never knew you wanted are also going to come true. Um, like I spent my whole life being scared of being eclipsed or forgotten that I put myself into a state of working as hard as I could to try to escape that. And that's wonderful. And it made the life that I have, but I f feel like, um, it took me a long time to realize things were okay and I you know I, I also think we can take pride in the strength that comes with our damage um, but that's not necessarily a good thing and I think if that baby had been able to just be a little bit more confident and sure of things that might have been helpful I don't know um, but the thing is is like the thing is is he's a baby of course he's gonna forget it of course he's gonna like be in the middle of the struggle and the fear and but it worked out <laughs> you know like it you, if you keep on living it will work out and you'll find better ways i think the true the saddest thing i have experienced is people in my life who have personality disorders to a point that they cannot build themselves a better life it's really hard to see because like um it is so wonderful to see people who make the world that they want, you know? Do you still need to be told some of that? God, yes. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. Plug your stuff. Where can people find you? Where can people, um, your book is amazing. So oh, thank you so much. Get that. Uh, my book, My Life as a Goddess, is available wherever books are sold. I am on social media, at Guy Branham. Uh, and I don't know if you can still watch Talk Show the Game Show on True TV online. Um, but I'm on TV a lot if you're in America. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you're the best. I love you all so much. I'm going to have my lovely and very patient producer, Dave, uh, edit in. Me saying the names from another another episode, because <coughs> uh, the people who support me on Patreon, because oh my god, <laughs> I might be dying. What if this is death? Is this death? Oh god, I hope it's death. I'm gonna thank the people who have supported this podcast financially. The people whose names I will butcher at the end of the episode because they became patrons of my podcast on patreon.com forward slash mopod m-o-h-p-o-d where you can decide what amount you want to donate per episode and uh if you give more than five dollars per episode you become a friend of the podcast and that means that i will butcher your name at the very very end of it which is now so i want to say a massive thank you to Andrea Pepperlin, Andy Walker, Autumn Blue Sky, Barry Norton, Kat Posse, Claire McCowan, Claire, Danny Beckett, Daniel Reifersheed, uh, Daphne Fenger, uh, Eleanor, Emma Appleton, Emma Chan, Fiona Richardson, Hannah Keel, Harry Van Dyke, Harry Minnett, Helena Thomas, Ida Sugar Larsen, Inga Ellingson, James Brand, Jane Mahoney, uh, Josie, Kathy Draxelbauer, Katie Hatfield, Katrina Engelson, KT, Kirsten Davidson, Queen T, Lily and Harry French, Murray Fraser, Manso Mir, Marbles Laws, Marac Fraser, Olivia Robson, Paul Swaddle, Perpetual Motion, Pierre Feneuf, Rachel Hemsley, Rachel Furley, Rachel Phillips, Ragdoll, Robert Knowles, Robin Kapper, Russell Hughes, Sarah Ferreira, Agassiz, Sarah Allard, Sheena Machette Cole, Cecil Fjeldsun, and Susie Tyler.
I want to give a massive thank you to Harriet Brain for writing and recording the jingle and to Linda Brinkhouse for the logo. Yeah, thank you so much. And I will probably speak to you properly next week. Bye. Oh.